Today is October 21st, 2020, and this is episode number 29 of Blurred Laws and Life with me, your host, Richard Bush. Last week, as I mentioned in the abbreviated episode number 28 of Blurred Laws and Life, I was in an arbitration trial that lasted the entire week, so I was a bit delayed with episode number 28 and did a much shortened episode of Blurred Laws and Life than I normally do. I mentioned in episode number 28 that I am not necessarily a fan of the arbitration process because it prohibits the use of jurors and juries, and it places the outcome in the hands of one single arbitrator. And as I mentioned, you have a very limited right to appeal. So therefore, I much prefer the trial setting where you have a jury, where you have the right to appeal, where you're not dependent upon one person's view of a case. And as I also mentioned, I feel like I do a pretty good job in front of a jury connecting with the jurors. As a result of that episode of Blurred Laws in Life last week, I had questions about the difference between a mediation and an arbitration and whether my feelings are the same about mediations as they are about arbitrations. And um, I just wanted to mention for those of you who had that question or who are confused by the differences between mediations and arbitrations, since those words are often used somewhat sometimes interchangeably, they are completely different animals and really bear no resemblance to one another. An arbitration results from an agreement in a contract to place any disputes between a single arbitrator that is binding on the parties, the decision of the arbitrator is binding on the parties. And many times you'll, as I mentioned, have limitation of remedies through that contract, and you will also have a limited right to appeal. And oftentimes those clauses are placed in contracts by the party having the greater power. So if you are going in for a job or if you want to sign a contract as an entertainer, with a production company or with a distribution company or with a movie company, um, you don't have much bargaining power to say, look, I'm not going to agree to that arbitration clause. They'll say, look, if you don't agree to it, then we're not going to do the deal. And while you may have the right and ability to try and challenge that arbitration clause later, claiming that it was unconscionable to force you into an arbitration, challenges to arbitration clauses um, are not oftentimes successful. And in a future episode of Blurred Laws in Life, I may even discuss the ability to challenge these types of clauses under the claim that they are unconscionable, meaning that it was not fair for you to be forced to sign the agreement or the clause such as an arbitration clause, and that the bargaining powers were not equal and things of that nature. But again, challenges to arbitration clauses are oftentimes, most of the times, unsuccessful. But that is an arbitration. A mediation, as I mentioned, is a completely different animal. 
you will have a neutral party like an arbitrator and sometimes arbitrators most of the time arbitrators also serve as mediators but a mediator's job is completely different a mediation is something that all courts require parties to enter into before the case goes to trial and a mediator unlike an arbitrator has zero power a mediator's job is to try to broker a settlement so a mediator will be picked by the parties and as i said this occurs in just about every court case in the united states the mediator will be picked by the parties and then will have briefs submitted to it legal briefs explaining the party's positions and his or her job will be to negotiate a settlement and what will happen will be the mediator will essentially engage in shuttle diplomacy will go back and forth between the rooms and will tell each side the holes in their case and why they would be better off settling and the mediator's job is as i said to try to negotiate broker a settlement but at the end of the day if the parties don't agree to settle the mediator has zero ability to impose his or her will on the parties or to issue a decision the mediation just fails and the parties go on to court so as i mentioned the arbitrator has all the power while the mediator has virtually no power and one the arbitration is in lieu of a court proceeding while a mediation is generally part of the court proceeding and imposed by the judge to try to get the parties to settle. So I hope that answers the question of the difference between arbitrations and mediations. Mediations I find can be productive if the parties have a desire to settle and if they are educated and listen to what the mediator has to say, but oftentimes heels are dug in and parties are intent on taking their case to trial and mediations will fail in those instances. So again, I hope this has been enlightening and has answered the questions I've received since my last podcast about the difference between arbitrations and mediations. prior episodes of Blurred Laws in Life, I discussed the fact that Congress had issued, or a subcommittee of Congress, had issued a massive report suggesting that the major tech companies have monopoly power and should be broken up. And I mentioned that the report focused on Apple, Google, Amazon, and Facebook. Well, since that time, the United States government has taken action. And just this week, the U.S. Department of Justice filed a federal court lawsuit against Google claiming that they monopolized the search and advertising space and asking the court to impose structural relief to prevent this anti-competitive, alleged anti-competitive behavior in the future. 
And while we mostly focus on blurred laws in life with music, entertainment, copyright issues, I did get my start in the practice of law in more corporate litigation in, as I've mentioned, a civil RICO racketeering case against 600 defendants. And I like to consider myself a jack of all trades when it comes to legal issues. And we handle many different cases well outside of the entertainment industry. And I thought it would be very interesting for me to walk you through the lawsuit against Google because this is going to be in the news. And I think this will help provide an overview of the United States antitrust laws and how the government will seek to win its case against Google and what Google has said so far in response. So as I mentioned just this past week, the United States Department of Justice, along with 10 different states, filed this antitrust complaint against Google, alleging that Google's search and advertising practices violate federal antitrust law. This is brought under what is called the Sherman Act, the Sherman Antitrust Act, which prohibits every contract combination or conspiracy to monopolize. And as I mentioned, the DOJ alleges three violations of the Sherman Act. One, that Google has monopoly power over general search services. Two, that Google holds a monopoly over search advertising. And three, that Google holds a monopoly over general search text advertising. So the first is, as I mentioned, general search services. And the Department of Justice alleges that Google controls approximately 88% of the market share in the search services market, and that there are currently only three competitors to Google, Bing with a 7% market share, Yahoo with a less than 4% market share, and a company I have never heard of, DuckDuckGo, with less than 2% market share. And here's the crux of the claim. The Department of Justice alleges that Google enters into exclusivity agreements that forbid pre-installation of competing search services. They allege that Google entered into other agreements that force pre-installation of Google search engines in prime locations and make them undeletable regardless of customer preference. Also, the DOJ alleges that Google entered into agreements with companies that require Google to be the default search engine on Apple phones. So the DOJ says this is extremely problematic because research shows consumers rarely change the default browser on a mobile device or computer browser and that Google pays billions of dollars each year to distributors such as Apple, LG, Motorola, Samsung, AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon to secure default status for Google's search engine. For both mobile and computer searching, being preset as a default is the most effective way, according to the DOJ, for general search engines to reach users, develop scale, and become or remain competitive. According to the complaint, Google search engine competitors are denied vital distribution, scale, and product recognition, ensuring they have no real chance to challenge Google. Okay, and now the second claim. The second claim 
is that for search advertising, that Google controls over 70% of the search advertising market share. According to the lawsuit, Google uses consumer search queries and consumer information to sell advertising, which we, by the way, discussed when it relates to Facebook on, I believe, episode number 27 of Blurred Laws in Life with Giancarlo Ciersic. In the U.S., advertisers pay $40 billion annually to place ads on Google's search engine results page. According to the complaint, Google shares revenue from this advertising with distributors who agree to favor Google's search engine, such as Apple making Google the default browser on its Safari app. And as a result, Android device manufacturers, mobile phone carriers, competing browsers, and Apple are all paid by Google in exchange for Google being the preset default general search engine. And again, the DOJ alleges that these agreements work to foreclose distribution to Google's rivals and prohibits anyone from competing effectively. The DOJ says that advertisers pay more to buy ads from a search provider with a large audience of potentially interested customers, and the DOJ alleges Google can deliver enormous audiences, especially in mobile, which its competitors cannot. Now, I definitely have thoughts on both of these allegations and claims, and I will address them in a moment. But before I do, let's go on to the third claim, text advertising. The DOJ alleges that general search text ads resemble organic search results. However, they appear at the top or bottom of the page with a subtle notice that they are ads or sponsors. According to the complaint, in 2018, General text ads accounted for close to 85% of Google's search ad revenue, and according to the complaint, there are no reasonable substitutes for general search text advertising, thus forcing users to pay for these ads at Google's price. And what does the DOJ want for these three alleged anti-competitive acts by Google? According to the DOJ, Google's practices harm consumers by reducing the quality of search services, lessening choice in search services, and impeding innovation. The DOJ believes Google's practices harm advertisers because Google has the power to manipulate the quantity of ad inventory and how much it charges advertisers. So the DOJ has asked the court to, quote, enter structural relief as needed to cure any anti-competitive harm, end quote. And enjoin Google from continuing to engage in the anti-competitive practices described herein and from engaging in any other practices with the same purpose and effect as the challenge practices. One way to look at how this case might resolve is a comparison to the Microsoft case that the Department of Justice filed 20 years ago against Microsoft concerning Microsoft's bundling of their browser, Internet Explorer, with the Windows operating system, thus excluding competing browsers such as Netscape. The settlement in that case, ultimately reached, didn't require unbundling the browser and the operating system, but instead focused on restricting terms and conditions on PC makers distributing Windows. The Microsoft case is similar to the present matter, as both deal with bundling of products and restrictions on distribution. The Microsoft case, however, ultimately was about distribution generally, 
whereas in this claim against Google, the DOJ is focusing on how Google uses distribution to bolster its monopolies. This is what the DOJ is going to have to establish in order to win the case. On count one, which is maintaining monopoly of general search services in violation of the Sherman Act, the DOJ is going to have to prove, one, that Google has engaged in predatory or anti-competitive conduct with, two, a specific intent to monopolize, and three, a dangerous probability of achieving monopoly power. On count two, maintaining monopoly of search advertising, the DOJ is going to have to prove the same three elements, that Google has engaged in predatory or anti-competitive conduct with a specific intent to monopolize, and three, a dangerous probability of achieving monopoly power. And the same will be needed on the general search text advertising. Now, what has Google responded with so far? On October 20th, Google released a statement titled, quote, a deeply flawed lawsuit that would do nothing to help consumers, end quote. And this statement is publicly available. Referring to the DOJ's, quote unquote, dubious complaint, Google says, quote, yes, like countless other businesses, we pay to promote our services just like a cereal brand might pay a supermarket to stock its products at the end of a row or on a shelf at eye level. For digital services, when you first buy a device, it has a kind of home screen, eye level shelf, end quote. Google points out that their competition has the same ability to negotiate for this quote unquote eye level shelf. Google also notes that the Google search engine is not exclusive on Apple products as Bing and Yahoo also pay to be featured choices. They also point out that Bing is the default browser on Windows services. Google says, quote, today you can easily download your choice of apps or change your default settings in a matter of seconds, faster than you can walk to another aisle in the grocery store. This lawsuit claims that Americans aren't sophisticated enough to do this, but we know that's not true, end quote. And then beginning again, Google says, quote, it's also trivially easy to change your search engine in our browser, Chrome, period, end quote. In Google's last statement, they say, quote, we understand with, that with our success comes scrutiny, but we stand by our position. American antitrust law is designed to promote innovation and help consumers, not tilt the playing field in favor of particular competitors or make it harder for people to get the services they want. We are confident that a court will conclude that this suit doesn't square with either the facts or the law, period, end quote. There are various allegations in the complaint itself where the DOJ sets forth what they believe is Google's attempt to obtain monopoly power. They talk about their size. They talk about their tactics. They talk about their control of the market. They talk about the fact that Google is not only a noun to identify the company, but the word Google is equivalent to searching the internet. And that Google, unless a court order is entered against it, will continue executing what they call its anti-competitive strategy, crippling the competitive process, reducing consumer choice, and stifling innovation. They say that Americans are forced to accept Google's policies privacy practices, and use of personal data, and new companies with innovative business models cannot emerge from Google's long shadow. 
They say that Google views the prospect of losing default status on Apple devices as a quote-unquote code red scenario. They say, in short, Google pays Apple billions to be the default search provider, in part because Google knows the agreement increases the company's valuable scale, thus simultaneously denying that scale to rivals. So what are my feelings about this lawsuit? Because we are inevitably going to see similar lawsuits being filed probably against Amazon, probably against Facebook, perhaps against Apple. I have read that the most likely target is going to be Facebook as opposed to Apple or Amazon. But the outcome of this case might foreshadow those other cases and whether they are even brought. So how do I feel about this lawsuit and in general this government attack on these major technology companies? I have mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, these companies such as Amazon and Google started from scratch. They built incredibly successful businesses based upon the fact that they were quite frankly and are quite frankly better than their competitors. And there is a whiff in this lawsuit of penalizing success. And that is not what the American ideal is based on. And I don't think that we should be in the business of penalizing success and saying to companies, you have become too successful, you are too good, and therefore you deserve to be broken up and that we as the government should be helping companies that are just simply not as good as another company. There is definitely a whiff of that going on here because it is absolutely true that Google has and has built the dominant search engine and that consumers go to Google and I don't know of any outcry from consumers that Google's position in the search market is harming them at all, costing them money or hurting consumers. I don't see that in the lawsuit anywhere how actual consumers are being hurt. What is alleged in the lawsuit is that these other search engines that control so much less of the market, one of which I've never even heard of, are being harmed. But I don't think it's the government's job to help inferior products succeed necessarily without more. I do understand that there certainly can be occasion where companies can become so powerful and so big and actually harm consumers where the monopoly power needs to be exercised, where the anti-competitive nature of the business is driving up prices and harming consumers and harming the citizens, where the use of the Sherman Act and the anti-monopoly statutes should be exercised by the government. But I don't see that here, and I haven't seen yet it articulated in a way that makes me think that a lawsuit against Amazon 
which has kept prices down for consumers for years, or against Apple or Facebook, would be appropriate or would help consumers. But this will be fleshed out in the days and weeks, months, and probably years to come. And it certainly is interesting and is, and the law here is quite blurred as well. So of course, it is absolutely appropriate for this podcast, Blurred Laws in Life. And we will certainly be speaking more about this in the future. In fact, what I would like to do is have an antitrust specialist on the show to speak about this in detail so that he and I can have the opportunity to debate these issues, discuss them, flesh them out, and help us all understand better where the government is coming from and what defenses Google and these other technology companies will have. So I hope you enjoyed this overview of the DOJ versus Google antitrust lawsuit. This will certainly not be the last time we discuss this on Blurred Laws in Life, and I hope to discuss this further with experts in this specific field, either tech experts or legal experts on the Sherman Act and the exercise of the anti-monopoly statutes by the U.S. government. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Blurred Laws in Life, episode number 29, and I look forward to speaking to you all next week.